Hi, I'd like to welcome you to our show. I'm your host, Praying Medic. We're talking about life as a child of God and all things related to his kingdom. Thanks for joining us. If you're a new listener to the show, you can find articles and books and other resources on my website, www.prayingmedic.com. You can also connect with me on Twitter. Just look for Praying Medic. Now let's jump into this week's show. My guest on today's show is my friend Steve Bremner, who is a fellow podcaster, fellow blogger, fellow author, and a missionary to Peru. Steve and I are going to talk books today. I hope you enjoy the show. I've seen a few of your podcasts, and so I know that you don't mind lengthy. No, and, I don't. And, my, uh, my interview with Jerry Magachine was two and a half hours. And <laughs> I would imagine if Jer- Jesse Berkey and I, when we do our podcast, we'll probably talk for four hours. Yeah, um, you have to split that one up. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Jesse and I are like a couple of high school girls. And we get together and talk. It's terrible. We could go on and on and on and on about so many different things. I got to meet him in person a couple of weeks ago. We went. He was out here in Phoenix doing a shoot for a TV series that's coming oh, out. Yeah? That is kind of a secret, but it's. But you just spoiled it. To be not much <laughs> of a secret. Yeah. Well, he's working on a telenovela. No, <laughs> he's working on a uh, series. It's basically it's kind of a reality show about the supernatural. I probably shouldn't talk too much about it, and okay. it's going to be airing in the fall. Jesse was out here filming, and we got together at uh, Mimi's Cafe, which is the first time I'd ever been to a Mimi's. They're awesome, really nice place. And we got together and had coffee and talked for a while. And he's an awesome dude. I just love him, but. I know when he and I do our podcast, it's going to go for hours and hours because there's so much for <laughs> us to talk about. I was reading his uh, Life Resurrected, and he has four resurrection stories to start the book off. And I'm like, <laughs> man. <laughs> but do you know – You know, I'm in, I got in touch with him because you recommended he get in touch with me back in the day. Yeah. And um, so he sent me a copy of his book, and, and then I got to interview him on my podcast. That was one of the first I was doing with people – where I'm interviewing people and not just kind of chatting with my same circle of friends. So, I mean, we're, we're kind of connected because of right. you. And he's a storyteller, and he's got another book coming out pretty soon. It's a fictional story. Uh, I'm looking forward to reading it. It's got a little snippet of it, and it looks really good from what I've read so far. And I like storytelling, and I'm yeah. going to be putting out a fiction book here eventually if I ever get time to get working on it. I finished up a book manuscript last night. I'm so happy. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> this thing has been on my plate forever, and I finally finally got it done. It's actually the second book this week I finished. <laughs> second, I assume you've had them both on the go for a while. Yeah, I, I had kind of an interesting uh, surprise that the Holy Spirit laid on me uh, a couple of weeks ago. I had written this paper on finance and economics. I wrote it probably two years ago, I think, and I never intended to publish it as a book. It was kind of an informational paper on finance and economics and the likelihood of economic collapse for various countries of the world. Because I started having these dreams a few years ago about economic collapse. (laughs) Denise was like, okay, if we're going to have something serious happen, I think I can get through it okay with the right attitude as long as I know what to expect. So I went on kind of a self-study thing 
I started, you know, searching Wikipedia, Investopedia, and some of the business journals, Wall Street Journal, and uh, different places, just gathering a lot of information, doing some fact-finding about what causes economic collapse, um, what factors have caused it historically, and then looking at, you know, the likelihood of those things happening again in the future. So I wrote this paper. I actually posted it on Facebook as a note a couple of years ago. I think yeah, maybe I, I remember reading it. Yeah. Yeah, it was called the No Hype Look at Economic Collapse. And Is that it, the same thing that comes to mind when I when I think of this that you basically explained like cycles yep. that an yeah. economic collapse of like say the dollar doesn't yep. mean it's the end of the world. It's right. just exactly that. There's yeah, there's I've a lot of then. so there's a lot of cases in in the last century of. A lot of countries suffering economic collapse, and it wasn't the end of the world for anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, life goes on. You repeg your your currency, you get your economy going, and you know, life goes on. I kind of wrote the note and uh, ran it by some of my friends who are in the finance and banking industry, and they all said it. the facts were actually really well presented. And then about a couple of weeks ago, when I was sitting around at home thinking about what's going on in Greece. And with the European Union, and they're trying to decide what they're going to do with Greece and their sovereign debt crisis. I felt like the Holy Spirit said, you know, if you wanted to publish this paper, this would be a good time. time. This would be a good time to do it. So what I did was I took a bunch of my dreams from the last five years that speak about some very specific things that I believe are going to happen after uh, some changes in the economic uh, systems of the world. And I wrote a little rant, <laughs> kind of a, a long blog post about my belief that if we were in fact to see something like an economic collapse or some any kind of global catastrophe, that it wouldn't necessarily be a world ending event. It might not coincide with the rapture. There may be a whole lot of us left afterwards. And if the church's leadership is not preparing us for such an event, how are we going to rebuild in the aftermath of something like that? I mean, if the church, if church leadership is really kind of setting us up for Jesus is going to come and take us all away, so we don't need to worry about it, then we're at a huge disadvantage strategically if we are not anticipating something like this happening. And in a number of the dreams that I've had, the Lord actually showed me things, what life would be like after the collapse and how things right. would be rebuilt. And so that's what this book is about. I I just threw it together in the last couple of weeks. Uh, Some of the prophetic revelation, uh, a blog post length discussion on the idea that maybe we're not going to be removed before this happens and what life might be like in in the aftermath. That's going to be a book that I'll be putting out hopefully in the next week or two. Well, don't you think that not just with regard to finances, but there's all sorts of other ways that if we're not, if we're not ready, that, uh, we're at a, a huge disadvantage. Oh like yeah. Anything bad that happens in the culture, uh, if you know, I, I check my newsfeed, I see people posting it as evidence. Jesus' return is near. It, you know, not just with economic collapse or uh, things like that, but it's almost like, and I'm not trying to kind of pretend I understand economics <laughs> as well as you do, right? But it's almost as if if people are talking about it, it is a negative doom and gloom type of thing. And what I, if I remember your article right, because you you said it a couple years ago, um, yep. I I read it like these things happen. This, there's cycles throughout the course of decades and centuries, you know, when it comes to currencies and things, and we might just be near the end of this currency's 
cycle, <laughs> you know? Right. So. And, and that's, that's it. These things are cyclical. They're fairly predictable, actually. You know, if you look mm-hmm. historically at the models, economic cycles are very predictable. And with pretty good reliability, if a nation does two or three things all at the same time, you can almost guarantee they're going to have a currency collapse. And right. it's very simple. If, Like if you look at the Weimar Republic of Germany, and if you look at Zimbabwe, you know, recent examples like that, usually it's war or revolution that causes those things to happen. And if you get stuck having to pay a lot of reparations after a war and your economic infrastructure has been devastated during the war, number one, you don't have any economic productivity. And number two, you have huge debts you have to pay to other nations and no way to make that money. So they start printing money to try to pay back their debt. (laughs) And money printing and a collapsed economy are two things that cause really, really bad currency collapse and economic disaster. Those things are are the typical examples of predictors of currency collapse. But there are other things that cause it too. So yeah, so the paper looks at the factors that typically cause economic collapse. And I can look at some of the nations of the world where those things are actively happening right now, where nations are printing money and where they are having economic slowdown and identify some nations that are probably at risk for that happening again. It'll be interesting to see how people respond to this book because it wasn't on my radar three weeks ago. Wow. Is it long like your other books have been so far, like the the 200 page mark? very short. No. I gotcha. This is going to be a very short. Well, so you don't write 50,000 word books in two weeks, three weeks. (laughs) No, you're saying no, I don't. The entire length of the message right now is 18,000 words. Which is a fairly short book. Uh, yeah. Probably, it's read that in like it, two hours tops. Yeah, uh, if you're a slow reader, I think. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, well, really, it's only a, that's why I said tops. Uh, yeah, tops. I mean, that's going for coffee breaks and going to that's the bathroom a, and that's a couple bathroom breaks. Yeah. Well, the thing is, though, it it is really a book about economics and finance, and that the thing that might scare some people away. The thing that I really try to do, though, with all my books is. I dumb down a lot of this information to a level where the average person who doesn't have a background in finance and economics can understand what I'm talking about. X, Y, Z made easy. It's kind of a pattern your book titles follow. Yeah, exactly. So far, so. I sent the manuscript to Northwest Prophetic, Al Mack, as some people know him. And he said, you know, right. this, this first section could be called Global Economics Made Simple. Because <laughs> right. that's, really, that's really what made it is. Made simple, yeah. Made yeah. Easy, simple. Yeah, so that's one of the books I have going on. And then the second book, I had been going back and forth with this manuscript for a while with my wife. It's uh, My Craziest Adventures with God, Volume 2. So it's the next two years of crazy stories of miracles, financial miracles and healing and different things that we've seen. Got that manuscript finished last night, sent it off to Lydia, my editor this morning. So I'm hoping we can have that book finished in about a month and get a cover design for it, and we can have it uh, have it available maybe in July. Great. So. Well, I want to ask you. <laughs> Jump in. Sorry. Yeah, so um, if you if you wrote a fiction book, would it come easy to you, or, or is it just like an idea? Well, that is a really good question, and I had never thought about writing a fictional work until, let's see, this is 2015, it was probably late 2013 when I started writing the Bogren stories on Facebook. Okay. Now, did you get in on any of that or not? 
It doesn't ring a bell. Doesn't ring a bell. <laughs> New to me right now. Right. Yeah. So, oh gosh, this is such a strange story. So Steve Harmon was on Facebook and he was teaching people about some fairly graduate level concepts involved in healing and deliverance. And a lot of people were scratching their heads going, what is this crazy man talking about? <laughs> so I thought, you know, what we need to do is we need someone to write an allegory, basically a fictional story, to illustrate the principles that Steve is talking about. Because when it comes to some of this outside-the-box process of inner healing, emotional healing and stuff, you have all these people who are like, show me that in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. That's, that's not biblical. That's not, God would never do that. What I found is it's a lot easier to train and equip and teach people who have these mental roadblocks if you teach them through uh, parables and allegory. So I wrote four stories based around a woman who is depressed and suicidal. She ends up committing suicide, and then she goes into the heavens, and she meets Jesus, meets the Father. She meets her personal angel, whose name is Gloriel, and they start to introduce her to the kingdom and how it works, how power works, how authority works, and how demons work. She gets this behind-the-scenes tutorial on the spiritual world. Well, I wrote about four or five of these short installments that were probably five to six hundred words. I think the longest one is probably a thousand words. And I posted them on Facebook as notes. And the response to them was huge. Everyone wanted to re say, hey, you got to write another story. You got to keep this going. And I, after writing about five or six of them, I was kind of telling people, look, I'm not planning on turning this into a novel. This is just a series of short stories to illustrate some spiritual principles. And the more I wrote, the more people wanted me to keep writing. And then there was this pressure for me to write a novel, and, and I had not thought about doing that. But the problem was I found writing fiction really easy. It was very simple for me to do it. I would basically sit down at the computer, and I would see in my imagination these scenes being played out in my mind. And I could, in my mind, I could hear this internal dialogue between the characters. So I just started dictating what I was seeing and hearing. I believe that's a lot of my process of writing is I'm basically dictating whatever the Holy Spirit is showing me. So when I sit down to write a book, like seeing in the spirit was the same thing. I took a vacation from work for about 10 days. And five of the days I sat down at my computer at sunrise with my cup of coffee. And I just started hammering away on the computer, writing four to 5,000 words a day day after day after day, from sunup till sundown, that's all I did was write for five days. I got into this flow where I could just sense what the Holy Spirit was revealing, and I was recalling some dreams and recalling some experiences, and I would just dictate and write and get in this flow. And before long, I had you know, 20,000 words written. So that is part of my writing process. And the fiction work is interesting because I'm torn between, you know, a lot of fiction writers will write out a plot line and they'll write out, they'll develop the characters and they'll develop storyline and they'll develop subplots and they have it all graphed out ahead of time. I am going to write a fictional book. I'm going to try to write a trilogy, actually. But I don't know that I'm going to develop the plot line ahead of time. I mm -hmm. really like the process of dictating what the Holy Spirit is showing me and letting him be in control of the action. I mean, it's a step of faith. Right. But it's it's been working really well so far. Everything you just said, except for the part about the Holy Spirit, 
that's how um, Stephen King says he writes in his in his novel, that book I reviewed and you commented on. He refers to it like like a, the way an archaeologist finds like you know this piece of bone sticking out of the ground, and that for him writing is like okay, here's the bone. And now we'll we'll you know get some some dust off of it and dig around it and see what it is and and pull it out of the ground or you know, whatever, and that he begins writing that way he be, he doesn't he he never has a plot figured out in his mind, and that he just basically comes up with like he says he comes up with a situation or some characters or uh, what would happen if you put a bunch of characters in this circumstance. Like um, Under the Dome or something, you know, that TV show that's out now, that he begins with, with that, and then he just sits down and writes and sees where it takes him. When I read that, I thought, well, then, if that's how he does it, then if I were to sit down and try it, I, I might do that. I might go that route. For me, fiction writing is hard. Uh, it's not something that comes natural to me, so I don't, I don't necessarily see myself doing much of it. Yeah. But when I when I read that from a, an expert, <laughs> I thought to myself, you know, if I were under the anointing and the, and the Lord were giving me something to write about, some kind of fiction story or something, then, oh, my goodness, I would totally do that. I don't think I would have a, a plot outline that I'm trying to fill in the spaces. I did come to the table with an agenda. I had some spiritual principles that I wanted to illustrate. I wanted to give people a better look at how demons manipulate people and how they influence people and how they uh, speak to people in the spiritual world and how they whisper in your ear about killing yourself and things of that nature. So that was my agenda. I wanted to illustrate and portray some very specific things, but how that was going to play out with the characters, I had no idea when I started. And some of the things that I got, I was literally minute by minute the Holy Spirit was giving me revelation about how things worked that I had no understanding of five minutes earlier. How did you write your first book? The long story made short is, okay, so like the first book I published was Kindle. You know, the Kindle book, I first, the first one I published was Six Lies People Believe About Divine Healing. It was really repurposing a lot of old blog content that was about healing and piecing things together into a book. Back in 2010, I remember when uh, Mike, Dr. Michael Brown was down here in Peru, and at, at a dinner table conversation, I, I got to ask him, how did you know you were ready to write your first book? And he was 33, which now I am, uh, when he published his first book. And as a blogger, I, I realized like, I'm getting to a point where I could write books, but I'm not sure if I should yet. You know, I've heard people say, don't write until you're 40 or things that, like that. That was right? Frank Viola, wasn't it? Yep, who wrote books before he was 30, incidentally yep. enough. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> no, but there, there was this balance between like, you know, I wouldn't want to hear like a 24-year-old write a book on like the world or something or how the world works, you know? So I get like the balance between, you know, being young and being uh, – and, and actually having something to say that you could put into a book. And so when I asked him that question, he said to me – um, you feel like you're it's it's ready to burst out of you, and I knew I knew what he was talking about, but I wasn't ready. Like it was, I knew that I'm not fully there, but I'm I'm kind of going down this path. And the the healing subject matter is not necessarily the book that was ready to burst out of me, but I, I had enough wherewithal to know 
that is kind of a, a hot topic. So I'll get my feet wet by doing that first. You know what I mean? Like get some experience, learn from it by doing a healing book first. So I, I really just repurposed a lot of the content I originally was blogging about in the early 2000s and then updating the book and, and maybe modifying some things I would say differently now. It was kind of longer and, and had more of the faith stuff in it. And then in the end, I decided, well, Kindle books, there's not like a minimum length they need to be because I felt like the two things flowed together, but it wasn't making a very good book. Like it, it, I felt better off splitting them in two. And so I went with like a short hundred some odd page healing book and then about a month or two later put out the, the faith book and, and they're meant to kind of complement each other um, because at first they were kind of like one manuscript and I felt like they didn't fit together very well as one book, but they complement each other better as separate. So that's how that came about. And this is um, going to be an interesting discussion for people who want to write books. Okay. So if you are a person who is a aspiring author you definitely need to listen up here. I did the same thing when I wrote my first book. I had written 20 or 30 blog posts on healing and people started bugging me. Hey, you need to write a book. <laughs> I was like, no, nah, I don't want to write a book. That's too much work. Right. And after I had enough blog posts out there where I had fleshed out enough of the ideas and had received a lot of input and I was getting into a place where I had a pretty comprehensive knowledge of the aspects of healing, it was at that point where I think I developed some credibility with an audience. There were, you know, hundreds or maybe some, you know, thousands of people who had heard about me, they knew about me, they had read some of my blog posts. I was getting this body of work out there on in the internet that Google was nice enough to aggregate and categorize. So when people started looking for articles on healing or miracles or resurrections, a lot of them ended up getting sent to my blog. So you develop a little bit of a following friends are like, you know, you really need to put this into a book. So I thought, okay, whatever, I'll, I'll, I'll write a book. And my wife, bless her heart. She used to work for a publishing company and she said, look, I can do the interior cover uh, design for you. I can do your, your cover art. I can do all this stuff. I know how to do it. Um, all you have to do is give me the text and I'll take care of it from there. So a lot of people ask me, who wants to get started in book writing, how do I begin the process of writing a book? And I recommend to them the process that I found accidentally. So you talk about repurposing blog posts mm -hmm. and I did the same thing, but I didn't really understand the process I was going through. Now, looking back on it uh, years later, I can real, I see that a lot of very successful authors have done the very same thing. I think David right. Kiyosaki does that. Um, they put out content on the internet on their personal websites or blogs. The search engines pick it up, they aggregate it, they start bringing an audience to your website based on the content you're sharing. Mm -hmm. And then after you've been doing that for a few years, you should just take all that content and repackage it as, as a book because you've right. got an audience that wants to, to read it. You have uh, the content already more or less flushed out for the most part, except for some basic editing. And then you just turn it into an ebook or a print book if you want, or both. Right. Well, I'm doing a mix of that. Like the healing book was a lot of repurposing. But you know, um, one thing that slipped to my mind as I, as I listened to you share about yours is I decided not to make it some big, huge, comprehensive book because I wanted to write other ones. 
You know what I mean? So I didn't want to get like stuck right. writing that. Yeah. And when you think of healing, there's there's no shortage of books, right? No, in there aren't. Charismatic. So, <laughs> so I was like, well, what what am I going to do that makes mine stand out? But yet you listen to the title or you look at the cover page, and not only do you know how it stands out, but you know what you're going to get out of it. So that's why that's why I went with specifically like the deconstructionism angle of like you know because I grew up in a in a Plymouth Brethren church. And my mom was was healed at the, the the crazy charismatic church outside town that you don't admit you've gone to, let alone <laughs> that you got healed at. You know what I mean? And right. so and so I'd hear these things over the years, like you know, many times. And and so I, I try to hone in on the chapters being like lies people believe. So this is what people believe. This is what the truth is. You know, like Jesus in his parable saying, "You've heard it said, but I tell you." You know, and so I was going for that style of, of right. book telling. Debunking the, the lies. Yeah. Yeah, and Mythbusters or something. And right. the the faith stuff I felt like didn't work so much that way. If I wanted in the same book to deconstruct and encourage people, I felt like the faith stuff was just kinda like tacked on. And so that's how it became its separate book. And both of those were repurposed blog content. And I've written some other little you know, short Kindle bite sized type of books. But the speaking in tongues book is where I was kind of like really going with this. Like if I if I could write a book, this is what I'd want it to be. But I want to test the waters with these other things first, like the healing uh, and other popular subject matter. But uh, with the speaking in tongues book, it was a lot more writing stuff that I've never taken time to sit down and write before. So it was maybe like 20 or 30 percent repurposing blog content and then the rest uh, coming up with it afresh. And actually, to, in, to kind of answer your question further about how did the first book come about, because in some ways, this is kind of like my first book, The Nine Lies People Believe About Speaking in Tongues. Same thing. What kind of nonsense do I hear people cling to that really holds them back in this area? And, you know, I could keep on following this template for, like, other books, right? But when it comes to speaking in tongues, there's a, there's a lot. And then coupled with how... I know there's not a lot of, of very good books out there, and then there's a few that are you know stellar. And like you said about Google, uh, a couple blog posts of mine uh, that, that get the most search engine traffic are about speaking in tongues. And the search terms are anything from, what if I don't speak in tongues? Um, where in the Bible is speaking in tongues least of the gifts? Least of the gifts verse you know stuff like that so i knew okay if i tackle speaking in tongues is not the least of the gifts there's no verse that says that it's just some kind of weird thing people you know uh and that blog post gets you know it just drives traffic to my site every day so i i knew i'm on to something if i take stuff like this and make it into a book and and in this case it was a lot more fresh content and uh and one of the complaints um you know i've gotten a lot of positive opinion and feedback from people about the healing book but the main complaint was like i didn't have too many testimonies in it and that's kind of like reflective of how i block i'm trying to convince right. you of something instead of right. just kind of go oh yeah 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 and so that's what i like about um you know your made simple style is uh it's like yeah i can go do this and so with the tongues book like i took more time to actually kind of include myself in the narrative or share examples of what i'm talking about or and so it, it kind of became longer and became like an actual book right that pool of books is kind of how how they came about. They they each kind of have a different way they 
came into existence. So well, far. this brings us to another question, and it's really kind of an interesting dynamic because there are some books, it seems that you can write, the books fill a niche where there's a demand for some information and content that no one has provided yet. Mm-hmm. So I think your book on uh, speaking in tongues was probably a book that hit that niche that there was where there was a vacuum. And it's one of those subjects where if you write a decent book on that subject, chances are you're going to get a fair amount of traffic because there just aren't a lot of good books on that subject. At least that aren't I mean, cessationist type of books. That, that aren't cessationist know? type of books. And why are cessationists right. writing about tongues? I don't know. I mean, right. what's the point of even writing about that? But yeah, you're right. And so your book fills a void that where people have all these questions and they have, they are curious. And it's one of the things that there's just a lot of curiosity out, out there. Even for people who go to cessationist churches, they still, they have friends who are speaking in tongues and they're like, well, is this demonic like my pastor's saying, or is this legit? I don't know. I wish somebody would write a book on this. So I think your book does a really good job of providing some good, solid information for people who are curious and want to know. The other aspect of your book writing, though, is you published a book on healing, probably because you knew this is a subject. It's of great interest. There's a lot of books out there. It's a hot topic. Sure. So I published my book on seeing in the spirit, partly because I knew it was a hot topic. Not necessarily to fill the void of a niche, because there's been a million books written on seeing in the spirit in the last five years. But because I saw Michael Van Vleiman's book, you know, How to See in the Spirit, was just continually selling really, really well. Whether he had it on sale or was giving it away for free or not, that book was a really, really strong seller in the charismatic Pentecostal categories on Kindle, because... It was a subject of huge interest to a lot of people in this current day and age. And I think that if anyone writes a decent book on that subject, they'll probably sell pretty well with it. I know Jeremy Mangersheen is looking at writing a book uh, on seeing in the spirit. And my book has sold really well from the get-go because it is a very, very hot topic. And I don't don't know that it's, it's even that popular of a topic. I don't know that there's a lot of books on it. But it is, like you say, a hot topic. So it's kind of like, in a way, it does fill a void that maybe maybe in a few years it won't be like a void anymore because more people are touching that subject, yeah. right? Yeah, and there's a, there's a lot of – there's a continuum. So like on healing, there's like a million books out there. Right. On seeing in the spirit, there's probably a couple of dozen. On tongues, not so many. Good yeah, books. and then and then the ones there are books on tongues. No, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's 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 a lot of tongues, but there's a lot of anti tongues books. Exactly, books that actually teach you the importance of tongues. There's very few, and it's an it's another subject that if somebody wrote a decent book on tongues, it would probably sell pretty well, simply because there right. isn't a whole lot out there that's that's good on the subject. So one of the things for authors to think about is. I get these questions from friends. Well, how do I go about writing a book? And it's probably not a bad idea to analyze the market and look at what is already out there. What has been written? How has it been received by the public? How have the reviews been of the current existing books that are out there? One of my next books is going to be on hearing God's voice. The reason why I want to publish that book is because there are very, very few books on hearing God's voice out there. Mark Verkler has one. 
and it's been pretty well reviewed. But other than that, there aren't very many books out there on how to hear God's voice. It's another subject where I think there's a lot of interest, but there is a vacuum. There's just this void where there haven't been a lot of good books written on the subject. Yeah, I agree. And and, and to touch on that thing you said about uh, uh, like looking at the market, um, I'm kind of the opposite and kind of, yeah, that's that's what I do. Like there's part of me that's like, no, this is the book burning in me and I want to write it. <laughs> and if only, if only five people read it, that's fine. Obviously, I'd rather have like 5,000 or something than five. But like at the same time with the top, like speaking in tongues, for example, it's like, okay, that's a, a topic I'm ready to burst with, like, right. you know, like Dr. Brown's advice. So what do I do about it? How do I go about it? And I looked at how the, the, the lies people believe uh, template worked with the healing book uh, because it tells the, the, the reader whether they're against or for it. It tells them exactly what they're in for, a title like that, you know? Right. And so – Tongues is like already, it already has built in that like it's going to deconstruct something, you know, if it's called lies people believe about speaking in tongues. And so I I don't pay my rent or anything <laughs> with the sales of this book. I mean, it sells, but it's not like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm I've, I've bought my first yacht. <laughs> no, it's not like that. <laughs> it's not, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what people think about like when, when they, they hear about a, a, a book being successful. That's that's one thing I want to make sure people know after this discussion is it doesn't mean like an author is 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 making a lot of bank or living high on the hog now you know like I had I had two supporters in 2013 in in their letter explaining why they were stopping they were like well now that you don't need it it's like why <laughs> you know it's like <laughs> what do you mean now that I, I'm a self published author right? now that you're the self published rich author who's sailing around the yeah. world on yachts and like a know, two dollar royalty on a going on to a Monte Carlo book. <laughs> right right I'm just you know putting it in my but you get the point right but with regard to like analyzing the market and stuff the the other downside of that is people writing because they want to make money and writing like books that fill voids, but they aren't, they aren't very good. And so I think there, there needs to be kind of like a combination of your passion as a writer mixing with what void do I see that this can fill? Like, right. you know what I mean? Cause, cause right. you probably get some of the same emails I do from people about like Kindle spy and Kindle, you know, how to, how to find what books to write about and, and outsource yes. and all these kind yeah. of things. And my and, wife um, and I took some online classes to learn how to target certain sectors of the market, how to find a, a weak area in the market that needs another book to be written. Yeah, I mean, we learned all that stuff. A lot of that information I don't use. Right. But My conscience doesn't it, let me. It's a hard thing to pin down because, like, you had this really strong passion to write this book on tongues. It was burning and inside of you. It was bursting to get out. And I have some books like that in me. My, actually, the fictional book is burning inside of me to get out. I really want to write that book. The problem is I know it's going to take me about six months of hardcore sitting down every day and writing to get that book out. And I just have to set the time aside to do it. I think there's a lot of wisdom in tapping into your passion. What is the subject that you're passionate about? And start with that and write with that and develop a really good manuscript. And don't be afraid to edit the snot out of it and keep, you know, revising the manuscript and re refining it because you and I both know there's a lot of really mediocre books out there by self-published authors that right. could be done a lot better if the person sat down and thought through the process a little more and spent a little more time reworking the manuscript. 
I think one of the weaknesses of self-published authors is when you submit a book to a traditional publisher, they're going to have an editor who's going to go mm -hmm. over it, and they're going to give you back the manuscript and say, fix these things. So having an editor kind of forces you to a little higher level of writing. And, and, and can, I, can I piggyback on that? Yeah, jump uh, in. Because cause if we're going to talk about writing, uh, oh, it would behoove us to cover editing too. You and I both have followed Frank Viola for a while. Mm -hmm. And Frank's advice to you know writers is you should have an editor. You should let your editor do their job. They'll make you a <laughs> yeah. better writer. And don't try to short circuit the process of thinking you don't need one. And but, I, but I believe in that. Yeah, that's what amazes me is how many people I know just refuse to do that. I don't want to use the word refuse, but like Resist. you can't Yeah, you can't persuade them of the value of that. Uh, yeah. I've got friends who've self-published books and, and, and what they have to share is good. And then you, sh you see it show up in their Amazon reviews of, of the people commenting that, no, this wasn't edited and it was hard to follow or, you know, a good editor would have helped the book in this way. And we're talking like kind reviews. We're not talking about like nasty. You know, I know other people who say, I know people who design their own covers who shouldn't. <laughs> you know, I know a few of those too. Right. And like you said, with the editor, you know, let your editor do their job. Well, if you do your job as a, as a writer, if you don't have graphic arts skills and it's worth like, I think ed an editor is more important than a cover designer. Uh, if, if you had only the budget for the two, I would go with the editor. Yeah, because can you can forgive. go on, you can go on Fiverr. And exactly. Get a, a decent cover design for a few dollars. Editing is is a different animal. <laughs> right, because people can people can forgive a horrible cover if if they get past the cover and read the book, they can they can forgive a cover. But if you're making if you're making it hard on the reader and they have to edit it themselves in their mind when they're reading it, you've you've lost them. You know, there's another well known guy in um, Christian, you know, self publishing and. Uh, so it's a decent book. The content is great, but it's so poorly edited. And I know before he published it, several different uh, friends of mine he sent it to, to to get an endorsement or whatever. And one of them said to me, I wrote him back and told him, you need to edit this or get it edited before publishing it. And I got it after it, you know, months and months later after it was on the Internet. And I was reading it thinking, why didn't this brother listen to people's advice? <laughs> and yeah. and and if if I read one book like that, I've read like dozens of other ones too and i've put some books down i just i just if it's if i can't just read it and get out of it what what you're giving me or if it's fiction and i'm reading a, if i have to edit it in my mind as i read it it's it's too much work the more you make your your reader work the more at a disadvantage i think you are if the ideas that you're trying to convey don't flow very well uh, for the reader and they have to continually move sentences around and reconstruct your grammar because it's not correct and put in punctuation that you right. didn't put in there. It becomes a lot more work for them to read the book. And there's a lot of people who will put the book down halfway through and go, you know, this is just too much work for me to read. I, right. The message is, is pretty decent, but it's too much work for me to read. And a right. lot of people don't understand that that is, it's a frustrating reality of being a writer is you have to be able to convey your message in a way that's clear and concise and grammatically correct and punctuated properly. You know, right. It's a pain in the butt, and, and, and it costs money, but... But that's, you know, that's worth the investment, you know? I think, I like think it is. The, the healing book, this, this lady from Australia uh, did it for me for free as a, as a favor, uh, and then, you know, with some favors she's asked of me in return. But then one of the errors I fell into is after getting my, my book edited, I, I fixed the mistakes, 
And then, you know, when I publish it, there's things people caught that basically was like me correcting other mistakes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. And so sentences didn't flow well or, or stuff like this. So th- with the, the tongues book, you know, I, I've gotten it down to a bit more of a science now. I had it edited. Roy Farias gave it back to me. It was bleeding red. And, and I loved the sight of that. I loved the sight of that because I know so I'm not offended or my feelings aren't hurt at the idea of someone saying, uh, you know, you got to fix this. This needs to make more sense or you should write word it this way. Or, you know, I, I suck at commas. I, I don't know how to use them properly. <laughs> so it's like having someone uh, catch that for me. You know, I'm getting better, right? But yeah. having, having someone catch that for me. So I fix it up and then. I've, I've got a, a mailing list for my my website. I wrote that list and said, hey, I've got this new book coming out. I've had an editor fix it. I've fixed the mistakes. But if there's anything I've learned, it's that I'll still have errors in it from having fixed things. Uh, is there any proofreaders out there, anyone who wants to kind of proofread it for me before it goes live? And I had like 20 people respond to that. And, and then of that, like five or six actually write me back with their findings. And it was like about 20 glaring mistakes and when I put that on the internet, I've had one typo that anyone ever caught, right. <laughs> and I'm quite proud. And there you I'm go. Quite proud of that. And that's the value of editing, you know. Right. And, and having people proofread and going through the process. I'll tell you what else you're probably not aware of is, if you're not, you will very soon be aware of it. You are going to learn how to use commas and yeah. semicolons and m dashes and all the other punctuation because I'm know, having to go I through know that. Those things. Yeah, I yeah. know those things, but but I used to view commas like. Um, spaces to breathe in a sentence. You know what I mean? A friend that in, edited my faith book and then this other short one I wrote, um, she wrote me back. She's like, for the love of God, Steve, please learn how to use commas. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm trying to, but that's that's part of why I'm having you you edit because I don't, you know. But it's like at the same time as working on it, like every, like every time someone edits it for me, I edit the snot out of it before giving it to them to make their life as easy as possible. You know what I mean? There's yeah. other people who just think, well, this is a mess, but, well, that's what my editor's for. Well, good luck with yes, that. And you no, know? Um, you don't want to give your editor a mess every time because right. here's, here's how I look at it. I look at it. I look at writing as a craft, and I look at it as we should be learning and growing better in the craft right. and our skill as writers. I don't feel like I should be, have the right to hand my editor a mess and have her spend three times as many hours going through this thing, correcting all of my mess-ups, I would feel a whole lot better if I gave her a manuscript that was pretty clean, and she comes back with a couple of suggestions here and there, but most of it is good to go. And that's what's happening. So the first book that I gave to Lydia, she's a really, really good editor, and she has been so patient with me, because I have poor, very poor use of punctuation. I yeah, mean, that's that's my struggle. I have been on a course of learning how to use punctuation for the last two years. Yeah, I would say the same thing for me. And a lot of that has come from feedback from Lydia. You know, she'll look at my manuscript, and I have all these commas and all these inappropriate semicolons and all this other stuff I have to change. So what I finally did was I got on this uh, punctuationguide.com, which is a website, and I've been referring to that regularly as I write. And what I found lately is my writing is getting so much better because I'm self-correcting my own mistakes. I know now how to use when to put an M dash or a semicolon, when to not put a comma in. It was a huge hassle because I have a three-part editing process. I give my draft manuscripts to my wife. I print them out. She reads through and with her little red marker and goes through everything, makes her changes. 
And then she gives them back to me and I make the corrections. And then it goes to Lydia and Lydia makes her corrections. And then it comes back to me and then we make the corrections and then we publish. So Mm -hmm. it's a fairly long editing process. Editing is a much bigger issue in writing than most people appreciate, I think. Right. And I think I think that's going to play a part in how successful some authors are if they don't take that step seriously in their their writing or in their I mean, I can forgive it on a blog. I can forgive it on Facebook statuses and stuff like that, you know, but people don't want to do that for something they pay money to read. Right, just simple. Exactly. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, we we have downloaded New York Times bestsellers onto Kindle and you're reading through there and the sentences, some of the sentences don't make any sense at all. And <laughs> I can't you're think like, of who yeah. edited this book. This is a New York Times bestseller and I, right. I, there's three sentences on this page. I can't make heads or tails of what they're I mean, intuitively because of the context, you can figure out what they're trying to say, but what they yeah. actually wrote doesn't make any sense. And that's right. just inexcusable for books like that. Right. I hear you and I advocate it. And you know, um, this, this latest book I've written uh, or repurposed from my blog, uh, it's the same thing. It's like, I'm, I'm coughing up some, some money. uh, And I say coughing up pretty liberally because it's kind of like, it's not in the budget, but we're making it in the budget to, you know, for, for paying for editing. Like that's the, that's our major thing. Like if I'm going to, you know, budget and I only have this money and that money. The editing is like, there's no excuse. Like I've got to get it edited and, and you know, and who's doing it for me is not exactly charging through the roof. Right. It's more of a favor. (laughs) You know what I mean? But, but, um, you know, there, there, I, I intend on basically paying an editor exactly what it costs or what they charge, you know, for, for this kind of work. Like that's how important it is to me because I don't want, I don't want a one star review on Amazon because, this person just really couldn't get through my book because of all the mistakes in it or something. It's, it's right. worth it to me that they give me a one-star review because they hated it or they actually read it and hated it. You know? Right. So not that I'm I the, want I'm the same reviews. way. I, I, if someone's going to give me a one-star review of a book because they don't like my theological perspective, I'm totally okay with that. My me stuff too. is not everyone's cup of tea, but what I don't want is someone getting on there and saying, well, this book has all kinds of grammatical errors and has punctuation problems and the flow of thought is completely disjointed. If those are their complaints, then they have a legitimate beef. Right. And when I started working with Lydia, I remember we were on, on the healing book and we got to like chapter uh, 12 and she basically said, okay, look, this chapter has huge problems. You may end up re- rewriting the whole chapter all over again. And she said, you know, in the last chapters, your thought process was very consistent. You gave some scriptures, you gave some illustrations, you gave a couple of testimonies, and everything flowed really well. In this chapter, it's all disjointed. You don't have any illustrations at all. There's just no consistency from chapter to chapter. So she pretty much took me to task, and she said, you need to provide some illustrations. You need to write this chapter like you wrote the last two. So go back to work, the drawing board and rewrite this chapter. And I realized she was right. I had pretty much gotten tired of writing for that particular chapter. And I turned in a C minus paper. Right. She said, look, this is not going to fly. You have to do better than this. And so I, I added a whole lot more content and I reflowed everything. And it turned out to be a much better chapter when it was done. But you have to be willing to do that work with an editor because a good editor wants to draw out of you 
the best writing that's possible. Right. Yeah, and that's why, like, if if I get back my manuscript bleeding red, I don't mind because I know what that means. The end result is going to be, you know, <laughs> and uh, and the, the type of bleeding red um, uh, this guy was was doing for me. He was making he was basically helping me reword sentences or break things up that were long fragmented sentences or or you know what Steve as I'm reading this I kind of don't understand what you're saying um you might need to reword it it's it's a lot of that uh yeah. when I when I get these back and in the end like I said going through that process having proofreaders there are two typos sorry one typo that someone caught and one that I caught and, and wondered how come nobody had ever said anything to me, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But we're, we're talking like at least it wasn't a mess. Like um, for the first few months of the healing book and the faith book being online, I was, I was getting a lot of feedback from people uh, <laughs> ca- catching things. Yeah, I, I read the healing book and there were a fair number of typos in there that, yeah, it looked like you had gotten some correction and you were trying right. to correct the things that were found, and then you didn't actually go back and read it through and make yeah, the final exactly. first round of corrections. And so you would have, you I, I assume, would have read it pretty early on because I'm yeah, contacting I you. Yeah. And so the the version people can find on the internet now is is it, that's it. It's cleaned up really. Yeah, you as, sent as, me a PDF, a draft, I think. Right. Well, in that in that phase, you know, when I'm sending manuscripts to people for review, or it's usually in that stage. Uh, yeah. you know, you know what I mean? It's usually at that stage where I'm still working on like, um, Stephen Crosby. Um, he's sent a few of us, uh, his latest book on, uh, New Testament prophets. And, you know, he says an email, yeah, there's, there's a lot of typos in this. So the feedback I'm looking for from you is not for the typos, but like the content Content. and, right. and I'm reading it going like, he said there was typos here. I've seen like so very few, but anyway, so I, I try to make sure people know that now. So they don't feel like, oh, Steve, I sat down with a red marker and I was going, no, 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 I just, that there's already somebody or there's already people doing that. Yeah. And uh, don't you worry, just read it for the content and tell me if I'm contradicting myself or I made a point here, but I demolish it later by something else. I say like, you know, I'm looking for that kind of feedback at that stage. Yeah. uh, Yeah, I did the same thing for uh, Northwest Prophetic. He is one of my uh, early stage proofreaders and I just sent him the manuscript to this book. I'm writing on economic collapse and how the kingdom responds to crisis. And I know that he's also an insanely busy guy. He's got like a million irons in the fire. So I said, look, I'm going to send you the manuscript. I know that he had also read the, the early draft, the Facebook note. So I said, you're, you're aware of most of the factual stuff that I've, I've already written. What you haven't seen is the first chapter and the last chapter, which are my discussions about what God's purpose is for, for these events and how the kingdom responds to them. So I said, if you don't have time to read the whole thing, just read the first and last chapters and give me your feedback on those. So I think it's good to give people specific information of what you're looking for. Like, don't worry about grammar and punctuation, or what I really would like your feedback on is my flow of thought or my general thesis or how I do a decent job of deconstructing these arguments. Right, exactly. Or I'm sending them something at the stage where their feedback is going to help me with how I write something. Uh, and then that, at that point later, it's going to be edited. So it's yeah. like making sure somebody knows this is not the stage where I'm looking for proofreaders or, or an yeah. editor, but I'm, uh, I'm working on this still. I've yeah. done that too, where I've sent chapters to people. Yeah. I sent, uh, Jeremy, I'm sorry, uh, Jesse Berkey, the, and Jeremy, both the manuscript of the book on seeing in the spirit, 
interestingly enough, Jesse Berkey came back and he kind of challenged me in a couple of points. He said, you know, he goes, I've heard you, you know, write about this before and I, I don't really understand, you know, where you're coming from in this position. Could you flesh this out a little more and elaborate and make it a little more clear why you're taking this position? Because it's a very unusual position. So that feedback was very valuable to me because it made me write several more paragraphs on that subject mm-hmm. and give some actual testimonies and illustrations of why I took that position because he felt I was, I had a weak argument. Right. So I find that stuff really valuable. Also, like when an author writes a book, there's, there's a team or there's more people involved than just the author. Oh yeah. If you're smart, you use your resources, use your friends, use other authors and say, Hey, am I completely off my rocker on this? (laughs) Would you look at this? Give me feedback, whatever. You know, if you, Especially if you have trusted friends and mentors who know how to, who have been around the block and they've read some books and they know how to give good feedback. Right. And 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 the Tongues book, uh, Stephen Crosby, Doctor Stephen Crosby, uh, he he was the first person to look at my mess of a of a <laughs> manuscript, and he basically wrote back and said, "Okay, I get what you're doing, and um, this this can be." It, it, it's like he said, um, if you want it to be more academic, here's where I recommend you go read this, this, this. He gave me a list of books to read, dude. Like, <laughs> um, <laughs> just and uh, and so I basically blew my Kindle Christmas money on on a few of them. But he basically said it's is well. I I think it's well voiced, and it's going to answer some some popular questions. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm behind you on this. But for the love of God, or however he said it. Uh, please go read this, this, and this first uh, to give it some more oomph. So, so I went and did that, and um, there was one book he recommended in particular. It was not a commentary, but it was some kind of work about Luke and Acts. And there were some points in there that I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm so glad I read this first, that I was already kind of saying, but like, okay, being able to quote and reference this really ratchets it up a few notches. And so because he knew that's what I was going for, I, I valued his input at that stage. So, you know, Christmas holidays that year, I'm reading these books he recommended and totally improving what I had to say in my book. Like, you know, thank, thank goodness I didn't rush to put it out. And then with that being said, it was probably four or 5,000 words longer than it would have been, you know, mostly from, from references and, and uh, adding a few extra paragraphs after reading some of those those books. But I look at it like uh, to tie into our conversation about having a team and having early uh, early beta readers or whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, I don't I don't know that he's got the time of hands to his hands to do that every time I write a book or something. Yeah. But like I wanted that for a book like this. If if you know I consider myself a relative nobody, and I'm trying to say something definitively or authoritatively, then I re- I really want to get like my facts straight. And so it was, you know, important to have like somebody who's got some high level academia yep. knowledge uh, to help me with that at that stage. And, yeah. uh, and, and I think it, it benefited the book and I'm glad I did. I wouldn't just skip straight forward to an editor, you know. I think that's a, a really good example of using people in your sphere of influence that can help you to address weaknesses in your writing or, or things that you haven't thought about or, you know, making really solid arguments and things of that nature, which makes for good writing. Yeah. Especially if you're writing nonfiction, you're trying to teach people principles and concepts. 
Well, folks, that is our show for today. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for dropping by. If you're new to the podcast and you haven't been to my website, you might drop by and check out the articles I have there. If you have any questions or comments about the show, you can contact me at admin at prayingmedic.com. That's A-D-M-I-N at prayingmedic.com. You can also contact me on Twitter. I'd like to thank you again for dropping by. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to learn more about Steve, you can go to his personal website, stevebremner.com. You can also find his books and other resources on fireonyourhead.org. Be sure to tune in next week for part two of our interview with Steve Bremner.